0: Hello, I'm Stuart from Blurred, and this is the latest episode of Do Not Adjust Your Focus, our podcast which aims to explore, like a marvellous Venn diagram, the overlaps and intersections of business, politics, culture, and comms, and which really serves as an enjoyable excuse for me to talk to interesting people about what's going on in the changing world around us. Today, I am talking to Matt Peacock, until recently, Group Director of Corporate Affairs at Vodafone leading the company's corporate social transformation strategy across 30 countries. And Matt is also a former BBC News correspondent. Matt, hello. Hi there. Um, I'm going to start with mobile, as it's a world you lived and breathed for the last eight years or so. Um, In that time, we've seen mobile go from being a a technology to a sector to a channel. And now it's arguably everything. Everything. Our working and social lives don't just depend on it functionally. They they take place on and and via it. Is that ubiquity a a good or a bad thing?
1: It's a good thing overall. Um, In fact, my personal journey with mobile goes even further back than that. So in the year 2000, I was working for AOL, which at the time was the world's largest internet company. And I remember having a conversation with um, the, the guy who ran strategy for AOL worldwide about mobile phones. And I said to him, look, these things are incredible. And this is, by the way, this is before even, um, before WAP, if you remember WAP. I do remember WAP. Quite a lot of people listening to this may not have been born when WAP existed, but WAP was a thing that was supposedly going to be the internet in your pocket, but wasn't. Um, And I said to this guy, look, this this." This little device is going to change. It's going to change people's lives. It's going to be a really powerful thing. And the guy looked at me like I was completely insane and said, no, it won't. People will have computers and they'll have dial-up internet. And that's basically how the world's going to work for quite a long time. Uh, Well, no. So I've sort of seen the evolution at various points through its history. Um, I was part of the team that launched 3G in Europe. I was at 3Mobile when it started. Um, And when I was a regulator at Ofcom, we, we talked about all these things. So to answer your question now, it's one of the greatest social goods in human history, I would say. Uh, the fact that um, anyone on the planet can be connected, anyone on the planet has access to community, to education, to financial services that for the vast majority of people on earth are simply closed down to them. Things like buying an insurance product, things like saving money for the future, like a pension. People can't do that in much of the world. Mobile does all of that. Um, there's there's an old saying um, that was coined by a guy who worked for the World Bank about 10 years ago. He said M- a mobile phone is a passport out of poverty for billions of people. And that is absolutely true. So overall, I think it's one of the most transformative technological advances
0: in human history. So you've got a, a huge number of things there on the, the positive side of the scale. Do you worry at all about... What we see, particularly in markets where mobile is so advanced that we we, we spend our lives looking at that little screen, the encroachment on private time, uninterrupted thinking, um, how it's led to a kind of always on, on culture. I mean, these are the things that get talked about yeah. a lot. What, what, uh, yeah. uh, something so, you, you meditate upon. A uh,
1: no, it, absolutely. And, and you know, I'd add to that the the effects of social media. Social media yeah. is effectively mobile. Mobile is social media. Yeah. So you think about the effects of social media on democracy, the effects of social media on public confidence in what is truth in politics. All these things, absolutely, they're a concern. But I would still say in the, in the scales, as it were, balancing the bad against the good, Um, mobile changes lives. And I've seen that in my own work in Vodafone, working in very poor countries where you bring mobile to to a community, to to people on very, very low incomes for the first time, you see their lives change. And, you know, there is data to demonstrate that there is a a, um, direct correlation between mobile penetration in a society and GDP. It has an actual measurable socioeconomic effect. So absolutely, the negatives are clear. The negatives around social dysfunctionality, Mm -hmm. um, excessive screen time, uh, around the effect of social media, which is almost entirely now a mobile platform, on public discourse and public confidence in institutions and public confidence in politics and and the erosion of uh, integrity in politics, which you could say is linked to social media. All of those things absolutely I understand and I do worry about them. I would still say despite them that the world is better for this technology
0: than not. You're a, a tech optimist. I am indeed. I just, um, I just on that. I just read uh, Hans Rosling's Factfulness for the second time. Yeah, the best books ever written. Um, and uh, <laughs> there's a line. He's, he's, he's the one time he gets quite frustrated in that book where he says people often call him an optimist, and he says I'm not. I'm a possibilitist. Possibilitist. Yeah. Um, and he talks about that, having a fact-based worldview. So, would you say you're? Um, that, that's what we need here is a, a better understanding of the realities of uh, yes. the, the plus uh, and the minus.
1: Actually, I would say a better understanding of history, yeah. to be honest. Because, um, I mean, if you step away from mobile for a second, look at, look at capitalism. Look at market-led economies. Capitalism, the, I- the idea of making a profit from something, um, is, um, has been around for thousands of years. And it is continually adapted um, and today we are living living through a crisis of modern globalized international capitalism. My own view is that capitalism will reinvent itself for the new future that lies ahead, a future that's particularly challenged by the threat of climate change. And and technology is a part of that. Technologies adapt to meet a human need. Uh, uh, and if you look back in history, you can see all sorts of analogues where people genuinely worried about a serious threat posed by a new technology Um, that brought in social instability that sort of tore up the old order that people could not possibly imagine how this could be assimilated for good purposes. Mm -hmm. But they were wrong. Basically, human beings are endlessly inventive, endlessly adaptable. So I don't know whether that makes me a a possibilist (laughs) or an optimist. But um, what I love is is looking at how history gives us lessons about how technology changes humanity and how humanity changes technology. And you know, I, I, I'm actually, despite everything that you, 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 you know, we see in, in, in the news at the moment, um, I am optimistic about the ability of technologies, including mobile technologies, to address the fundamental concerns that people have about the future, particularly climate change.
0: What about um, 5G? So we're talking about mobile, that's the yeah. obvious one. It's the tech promised land. It's the land of milk and honey and uh, and the Internet of Things. Yeah. Is it overhyped or not? Uh, it's massively overhyped.
1: <laughs> uh, and actually, he <laughs> <funnily, laughs> yeah, massively overhyped. In fact, one one of the promises I made to myself and my colleagues just um, before I left Vodafone, as I, as I said, if I find myself walking around Mobile World Congress, which is the global trade fair for the mobile industry in Barcelona, it happens every February, uh, and the signs say 6G, just <laughs> shoot me. <laughs> you know, just... Seriously put me out of my misery because the first time I went, it was one G. Except you didn't call it one G back then, it was GSM. Uh so I, I've been through all the Gs. Yeah. <laughs> um and there's a there's a very, very predictable pattern with all of them, which is that you know, the hype starts about five years out and it's driven by the vendors, the people who make the equipment, yeah, the guys who make the bits of kit that mobile operators use, including uh the guys who make the handsets. Um, and then the closer to you, you get, uh, and it becomes a more real thing. Uh, uh, the investors start to worry about it because every iteration, every new generation, uh, is unbelievably expensive. And and you know to be clear, the mobile industry, um, in terms of its financial um, stability, is it in, in a very very bad place, right? So mobile stocks have uh, have been for the last two years now, at close to kind of fifteen to twenty year lows. And this is an industry, this is massively indebted, and that is the worst possible combination from an investment perspective in that it's capital intensive, but actually low profit profitability um, and driven by a whole bunch of factors, uh, including consumer focused regulation that only ever drive prices down when your costs go up. So in other words, 5G is actually, um, uh, for the mobile industry, uh, it's a matter of survival. If an operator doesn't move into 5G, then they don't really have a future. Um, but it's not in any sense a kind of you know sunlit upland.
0: So with all that in mind, a lot of companies in this space are nonetheless using five G as almost a starting point for their their purpose commitments. So it's all about we're here to make a build a better world yep. through connections and technology, and five G is key to that. So which becomes a, a bit of a bridge into 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 purpose as a as a subject matter because at Vodafone. You were in no small part responsible for, for that becoming, and staying the UK's most valuable brand based on its purpose and corporate transparency and sustainability. So you were doing that transformational work uh, in this space. What four, five, six years ago? Yeah. Uh, and there were a few models around then for what. No, no one was talking about purpose really. Yeah. Um, ESG didn't exist as a term, I don't think. Um, so, so you weren't working to a. Uh, a model or a previously yeah. uh, created set of guidelines. How, how did you how did you go about it at, at, at Vodafone? I mean, was it just a, common sense? <laughs>
1: um, n- um, a combination of different things. I mean, first of all, you know, these things were all a, a team effort. Genuinely, I mean, it's a, a number of individuals I'm very, very heavily involved in doing this. It wasn't just me. A lot of it was driven by events. A lot of it was driven by bad things that happened to the company that forced the company to think differently about various aspects of the risks that it faced so for example um, being accused of you know hugely egregious tax evasion in 2010 by uh, a number of campaign groups have essentially came together and formed uk uncut um, who in the event in the end actually sort of more or less morphed into the global occupy movement so the company A company that considered itself to be socially responsible suddenly found itself accused of tremendous social irresponsibility. And that in turn led to a process within the business where we looked hard at what we were doing and what we were not doing around tax and decided the only way to actually address what we're being accused of was to to launch what is now one of the world's leading tax transparency programs. And that in turn, that process in turn sort of created a chain of thinking within the business about, well, what, what are the other risks? that are existential for us in terms of public perception, because ultimately, if you lose the trust of the public, then as a consumer brand, we don't have a business. Uh, what else worries people? And once you start that process, once you actually look at the business from the eyes of the people outside in the real world, rather than looking from, the, from within the business into your own business, which is, t- tends to be what happens with business, when you, look at a, when you consider risk in business, the, the way companies generally approach risk assessment is they will think about all the bad things that can happen to them. It's very much an inward facing process. What we started to do was to think about, well, from outside the company, how do we look? From outside the company, what are the systemic risks that people fear we are contributing to where we need to either do things differently? stop doing stuff or start doing stuff, or at the very least, we need to explain very, very clearly what we're doing. Uh, and tax was a vivid example of that. The second example that came along was digital human rights after, after Snowden. So Edward Snowden's first stories, the very first story that broke, was about Vodafone. Right. Yeah. Not a lot of people remember this. No, but, I don't remember. but the very first story in The Guardian and the Süddeutsche Zeitung and the New York Times and various other papers who, who um, published this. Focused on UK-based international telecoms companies illegally colluding with GCHQ to spy on millions of people worldwide. Well, there is really only one major UK-based international telecoms company. Now, as it happens, that company was cable and wireless, which had been acquired by Vodafone. And Snowden essentially brought into sharp relief exactly the same process that we've gone through with tax, which is we're accused of doing a truly terrible thing, illegal Illegal things, you know, sort of bugging half of Germany, for example. And the only way we could address those allegations was by looking into ourselves, and getting to the ground truth, finding out exactly what was happening and what wasn't happening, and creating a transparency program, uh, which eventually then morphed into a digital human rights program. Again, one of the largest in the
0: world. So. I mean, it sounds like then events created the the imperative. This was a necessity. The company had to do it. But you you nonetheless will have still had to, um, in the period following that, inculcate a kind of culture, a mindset of... Of, of this being a good thing, ongoing. What were the challenges in in kind of embedding that as a as a culture across the organisation?
1: So I, I think a, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, transparency in the open communication of what the company is doing about it's, its most serious risks, the risks that most alarm the public, is a foundation for a much bigger piece, which is the the the, the purpose piece. So so the first the first thing that we we did once we had sort of established. Uh, the set of risks where we needed to be super transparent, we then thought, okay, so in the world, saying to people we do no harm is not enough, right? As a very large company, the world expects you to do good as well as do no harm, okay? So what is the good that we do? Um, And the good that we do essentially forms the core of a social purpose. So we zeroed in on what are the areas where our business, through its core business, through its core P&L, the thing that we make money from, is actually delivering a social good and the the number one thing at the top of the list was women was empowering women and the reason why that was the top of the list is that somewhere in the region of 70 percent of all consumer purchasing decisions in the world are made by women and that is also the case in mobile so when you know when kids get a mobile phone for the first time yeah more than often it's the the mother who will choose the mobile right. phones of the kids right? so uh, just as an example so we basically decided to focus on areas where our core business strategy, our long-term financial and commercial goals overlapped with a clear societal benefit, which essentially meant we focused on women empowerment and uh, digital skills and digital jobs for younger people. Right? Um, both of those were core with, uh, linked to core business activities. And the way, the way we went about persuading the company to do this was um, presenting very, very hard business cases based on long-term projections of revenue, based on long-term projections of reduction of cost, which is how we made the business case to decarbonize the company, to move the company to 100% renewables. What we didn't do is go in and make, as it were, a pure moral argument right. and say you really should do this because otherwise your children will grow up in a world that looks like something out of Mad Max. You know, Everyone would agree, but in a company like Vodafone, which, like many large public companies, has a very strong finance dna in it you know you need a solid business case to do anything rightly and sensibly we went in with business cases that supported a social goal and and that's the case in any other company you look at that does this stuff seriously i find is that they go with the grain of the business you go with the grain of the financial and commercial and operating objectives of the business if you don't everyone will agree with you that it should be done but it will always be done next year not now
0: yeah and and i think um you know, this is the big problem, isn't it? So many companies are not doing this seriously, and I'm, I'm visualising this kind of overlap between credibility, the actions you take in this yeah. place, commercial rationale for it, why this is linked to our business strategy, as well as the moral imperative. But unless it's all three of those, and, and it, I mean, there is so much kind of woke washing out there at the oh, moment. It, Do, yeah. Does that that current bandwagonry frustrate you? It, it
1: does. So um, it, it does a lot because ultimately. Well, two things. First of all, it even further diminishes public trust in business, um, which is already at a historic low. So when businesses say they are doing the right thing, but it turns out just to be fluff, uh, that's actually doubly harmful because they're already starting from such a low base in terms of public trust. Um, Secondly, much more importantly, it means they're actually not fixing the things that have to be fixed. They're They're not addressing climate change. You know the the existential threat of our generation, the generation to follow, where businesses can and should and I believe ultimately will make an enormous difference, they're not actually fixing it. They're not addressing core issues of inequality within populations. They're not addressing the fact that large, very large proportions of younger people are coming to the workplace with a much less stable future ahead of them than their parents had. In other words, all the stuff that's got to get it fixed, they're not fixing it. They're focusing, focusing instead on the branding and the feel good Mm -hmm. and the fluff and the noise and what um, one of my um, uh, former brand director colleagues used to call videos of happy, clappy people dancing in the street rather than actually fixing the business issues that they need to fix. And in doing so, by the way, making more money.
0: Yeah. Well, I've been talking a lot from a a comms, marketing, creativity point of view about my growing disillusionment with even the language of ideas. I'm increasingly of the belief that we've, we've got to talk in the, the language of solutions, not ideas, because what use is a, even a creative campaign for a brand unless, unless it's doing something? real, tackling a real issue. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a
1: simple process that, that I, I went through at Vodafone I've, I, that I go through with um, companies that I work with now and actually I, that I teach at business schools when I lecture the stuff at business schools, which is, you've got it's very simple. You've got essentially a, a Venn diagram where on the one side, you've got the, the company's principal risks, the, the the existential threats to the well-being of the enterprise over here. And then over here, you've got the public's fears, the greatest fears the the public has about that company's activities or about its sector's activities. And where those two circles overlap, that is where you have to have your ESG program. That's where your environmental, social and governance risks lie. And that is where you have to be super transparent. For a mobile company, it's things like uh, supply chain transparency. There are tremendous human rights issues in the supply chain for for, um, technology companies. Think of, you know, Cobalt. Think of the, the DRC, the child miners in the Congo and so forth. And do you think of, you know, electronic components factories in China? Yeah. EMF, electromagnetic frequency. Does my mm-hmm. mobile phone give me cancer? Mm-hmm. That's another one. Tax is another one for all companies, but, but uh, mobile companies included. Uh, and digital human rights. Is my private communications private? What's your position on freedom of expression? Will you shut down vast areas of the Internet if you're told to do so by, by a government? Well, you have to by law if you're commanded to. But how transparent will you be about that process? So that's where you have the overlap that gives you your ESG focus. At the same time, there's a second Venn diagram, which is what are the opportunities for the company to grow? What are the opportunities that will define its future financially, commercially, strategically? That's one circle over here. And then the other circle is what are the greatest hopes that the public has for the future? What are the aspirations that the the public has in general for what their kids are going to grow up into? And where those two overlap, that is your social
0: purpose to a degree that almost answers my next question, which was gonna be around um, where you kind of predict the purposefulness discourse going, what's the next fe- stage of its evolution? Because if it's gonna be more than just marketing mm. fluff, if it's gonna matter, if it's gonna really uh, lead to solutions, not just ideas, then then it, it's got to do everything you've, you've just outlined.
1: I, thi- I, th- I think what will happen mm. is the ESG part will then drive the social purpose part. So let, let me explain briefly what I mean by that. So ESG was nowhere four years ago. Right. Yeah. The the bits of ESG have been around forever. Okay, but as a as a as an acronym and as a concept, ESG is very, very new. It has gone from being something that, frankly, even FTSE thirty boards would not have recognized the term ESG thirty years um, three years ago, sorry, three years ago, to something that is now absolutely defining the state of the debt markets. It's defining investment decisions by pension funds. It's defining uh, whether or not private equity firms can actually raise finance to go off and buy something. And it's shaping every aspect of how modern global capitalism works. Um, So, I mean, you know, very recently in the news, the possibility that Exxon could lose their AAA rating Mm -hmm. because they score badly on ESG is quite extraordinary. This stuff was not in in discussion even 18 months ago actually. So I think the first thing you'll see is that ESG's gone mainstream as a as a key determinant of the financial future of the investability of any company. You know, even a startup going yep. out looking for second second round funding, if their ESG are score are poor, scores are poor, they're in trouble. From that will then flow the second part of my, as it were, my virtual Venn diagram, which is, okay, fine, so you're now demonstrating that you're addressing these fears, but what are you doing to make the world a better place? What's your proactive contribution? You know, the absence of a negative is not enough. Prove the positive. At which point, a board that isn't thinking hard about what's its actual social purpose, what, is it, what does it exist for, they will face the same pressure... I think within the next two to three years, maybe a bit longer, but I doubt it, that boards today are facing on ESG.
0: Right. And, and it sounds like you, you, you're you of the opinion that the pressure will still largely be coming from, in, in the first instance at least, that, that the investor community the you know, yes that, yes the, but the markets
1: yeah from the market but, but i mean the the investment community more generally so i mean this is not just a public company issue this is um, anyone who needs money to grow their business yeah so this you know this is you know it's sort of unicorns downwards as well as public companies
0: upwards we're, we're seeing huge sea changes even in the last few months i mean there was the ceos of fidelity and alliance so you're two of london's yeah biggest fund managers making what i thought was a quite extraordinary intervention a week or so ago in the FT talking about the need to get away from an obsession with GDP and the privacy yeah, yeah. of shareholders. That's, right. and that, that, that's a yeah, direct well, quote. I think the FT called it a slightly surprising comment and in, 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 in their a wonderful way.
1: Yeah, I mean, so the, the US Business Roundtable, which is a kind of club for the top 140 US CEOs, uh, effectively, um, about four months ago, rewrote the kind of the constitutional rules of that club and buried the notion of uh, the cult of shareholder value that that really dates back to Milton Friedman and the Chicago Boys in the 1970s—a complete reversal away from this idea that capitalism, that modern business, the large um, company, public company businesses are all about shareholder value. That's all they're there for. Let society worry about what happens to to the the, the monies they generate. Their role is to create a value for shareholders. That is being re- retreated from at great speed. And the, the Business Roundtable uh, rewriting of their constitutional rules, they're sort of the statement of principles that all companies should abide by, was a very important
0: moment. Do you think we'll see that translate into, into politics? I'm going to touch on politics later, but it's an obvious question here because it, it feels like it hasn't yet made a breakthrough in the West where you'd expect it to. You have people like AOC in the, in the States. Um, we don't have anyone really similar here yet, but in terms of it breaking through into actual policy that is getting enacted around reinventing the capitalism on which our economies are based. I mean, I'm fascinated yeah. with uh, Mariana Mazzucato, yeah. economist that <clears throat> many people will know. But when you've got an economist like her with her worldview advising the EU on things, it suggests that changes a foot, but we might be at the early stages of it.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, change is definitely a foot. I mean, it, so look at the Labour Party manifesto going to the election in this country. Um, look at what's happening in several of the Eastern European economies around a very strong nationalist Economic focus, a rejection of the principle of foreign direct investment, and a very very strong desire that that international businesses um, in those places need to invest or even list as enlist their businesses in those countries. so you can see it in many many ways. what all these dynamics have in common in in countries with strongly populist leaders who are uh, Brazil is another example, who are driven by a sense that the the current world order does not work for their populations. What they all have in common is a profound disdain for international business, whether they're on the left or whether they're on the right, like Bolsonaro. There's a real distrust of international business and a sense that international business has failed the populations of those countries. And that's why I say that, that the business leaders who pay attention to these things and who worry about these things, and there are many of them, are sort of grasping around for the thing that they need to do that's different to address those very, very serious political risks that are on the horizon.
0: So you are highlighting something that I've been feeling a while as well, which is that there's this sense that with populism and protectionism on the rise across, across the world, nations are pulling up the drawbridge just when corporations are trying to be more global, particularly in the face of, of some of these immense <clears throat> global challenges that we're talking about. And there's an obvious tension there. Who, who can best... Deliver solutions to a problematic world, governments or, or ah, corporations
1: well the, the honest answer is both, and yeah. neither <laughs> which, which doesn 't help provide an answer i 'd say it 's two things first of all it 's a bit of a race really you know will business will large businesses will multinational corporations and all sm- and, and smaller businesses beneath them will they be able to reinvent themselves, reinvent the fundamental model that underpins how they operate? quickly enough that they can actually head off this kind of tidal wave of angry populism that is transforming politics certainly across the across the rich world but also actually across much of the developing and emerging world as well can they get there in time yeah so that's kind of one big question and then secondly the very significant threats to humanity that we see climate change is an obvious one but it's not the only one i would say antibiotic resistant pandemic is another one um, I would also say that the, the kind of tidal wave of youth unemployment that is beginning to emerge in many countries, um, including in developing world countries, is another serious source of anxiety. And and fear about
0: tech. I'm drawing a link back to automation automation and AI. Yeah, yeah, well,
1: I mean, so when you consider that in a country like Egypt, um, I mean, no one knows the exact numbers because they're not really captured properly, but somewhere between, you know, a half and two thirds of all young people do not have a genuine fixed role in society that is economically active. And that is before AI really kicks in. When you, when you look at that, when you look at unemployment in Southern Europe, which is still a huge issue amongst young people, despite the fact that some of the Southern European economies have come back um, re- relatively healthily from the global financial crisis, you know, um, what does the future look like? What does the future look like when uh, millions upon millions of the next generation of your own population have no reason to exist in economic terms? Yeah? Just none. I mean, what kind of world do you need to build
0: where that is the almost certain reality that is emerging? Uh, this is where our, um, our shared tech optimism has to be allied to some practical <laughs> practical solutions, right? To, yeah. These questions are yeah, so I- intractable. So
1: the funny thing is that actually climate change is the easiest one to solve. If you think about the sort of the, the the major threats to the future of humanity that lie ahead, you know, uh, hu- humanity losing its sense of what's it for, because so much of what we do can be replaced by silicon and algorithms. Uh, disease, genuine, genuine fear of uh, new disease types, new pathogens um, that against which we have no defense in um, very, very densified populations that did not exist in this form only two generations ago. And then climate change. Climate change, actually, from a technology perspective, is the easiest to solve
0: of, a, the, of that that's list. That's on the one hand a good thing, and on the other hand, a slightly sobering thought well i mean g- genuinely
1: i mean you know mm-hmm. if i sort of despite just myself as a possibilist or even a tech optimist the one that worries me most is what is the next generation of bright capable ambitious young people going to do in a world where there are really no jobs apart from A very tiny number of people who create the stuff, the coders, the inventors, the innovators. That's the tiny, tiny subset. And, you know, the, the kind of the caring and creating roles. You know, they'll always be artists, probably. But what about everyone else? What are we for as human beings? It's the um, of all the sort of dystopian visions and all the things that actually business has to think about fixing. Because yeah. bi- uh, to to, uh, to pick up on your earlier question, is it business or is, is it government? Actually, quite a lot of this is business. Yeah. Yeah. Businesses m- need to make choices about. Uh, how they employ people what they train them in how how they structure their organizations where they put their people and so forth that have societal consequences always have done you know do they you know do they close all their shops here's a simple real life real life um, dilemma for many businesses if you're a, a consumer brand with a UK operation um and you had like Vodafone but there are there are others um and you have a very large customer base you will have a shop on every high street in Breton. Um, but most of what you do now is online, and actually, people love online. People prefer speaking to a robot than speaking to a human being when they phone up because they've got a problem. Because yeah. robots answer the phone immediately. Speech recognition software is pretty good. Ninety percent plus of the time, they'll actually be able to work out what the issues and solve it, and you're off the phone within two minutes,
0: as or, opposed or, or to being on a chatbot, which is even yeah, or on a chatbot even, it's even you, faster. Even yeah, as yeah. opposed
1: to being on hold for forty-five minutes yeah. to speak to someone in another country who can't understand what you're saying. Similarly, why you know why have six hundred shops when maybe I don't know large I don't know what the percentage would be now but certainly north of 60% of your customers would rather would would never go in your shop and uh, an even higher proportion given a choice would never go in your shop why have shops but if you don't have shops the people who work in those shops what do they do for a living where do they go what happens to the high street if everyone makes the same choice yeah so the, these are real today questions. These are not dystopian generation from now questions. These are real questions, real dilemmas for businesses.
0: What we're, what we're getting to is the fact that there are some huge intractable problems and there's going to have to be a lot of deep thinking and solution-focused um, approaches brought to it. I, I worry that it, a lot of this stuff isn't getting talked about very much. And, it, and it, it, it brings me on to the last thing I wanted to ask you about, which is, which is around media. Actually, as someone who started their career in, uh, with the BBC on the flagship World at One programme and you've, you've reported around the world, what state do you think the media is? Are you still, have you still got a passion for that, that world? I, I still, still have a passion for it. Do you yeah. think we've, we've, yeah. journalism is in a good, a good state? No,
1: journalism is not in a good state. Certainly not professional journalism. So professional journalism um, as a business model is in genuinely in crisis. It's been in crisis for quite a long time. Um, and it's it's essentially kept alive by a relatively small number of wealthy benefactors um, some of which are governments some of which are essentially legislative processes that provide funding like the license fee in, in the UK some of which are the desires of uh, media owners to have a flagship news organization that they run at a loss that it doesn't generate, Profits, it's loss-making, but for those individuals running those companies, it matters that they have, for example, if you're Murdoch, it matters that you have the Times, because in his bones, for you know all the criticisms that could be levelled at him, in his bones, Rupert Murdoch is a journalist; he believes in journalism even though journalism is loss making. So journalism, um, professional journalism, people who are paid to analyze and then ask very, very difficult, well-informed questions of people in power is a lousy business from a financial point of view. And my, my fear about it is that bit by bit, it's getting harder and harder for professional journalists to do what they need to do. So I do worry about that greatly because speaking as someone who's passionate about human rights and I study human rights and I lecture on human rights and I've run a human rights program at Vodafone. Freedom of media is the, is the tip of the spear. It's the first human right that goes. Uh, it's the first thing that happens when a state becomes less um, uh, focused on its obligation to protect human rights. Journalists can no longer be journalists. They can no longer speak freely. Where you have... A diminishing freedom of media, not because the government are putting journalists in jail like they do in Turkey, but, sim- but simply because running a newspaper will bankrupt you. So you don't do it. Uh, I really worry about the democratic impact of that. So I, I'm passionate about media, but I'm actually very worried about media, about the future of professional journalism. It's a serious concern.
0: Yeah. Throughout this conversation, we've we've slightly painted a picture of a, a world beset with Problems, many of which are solvable. That's the optimistic side. But I, I do think the quality of our political leadership and the quality of the journalists that have to hold them to account and and raise raise these issues so that the public can be aware of them, yeah. can care about them, can demand action on yeah, yeah. them from businesses and yeah, government. Yeah. It, it feels like that that is all slightly falling apart or suboptimal. So we we may have to do a second podcast where we, we bring together a load of solutions to the problems <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we've, we've identified. Yeah, the, so, um, let's give ourselves a couple of years to work yeah, on Yeah, exactly. One, um, mm-hmm. Rapid fire, final question, just because I'm going to need to wrap up this, this excellent conversation. I am currently compiling my Christmas book wish list. Uh, so I'm asking everyone for a recommendation. What, what's the oh. best book of 2019, or that you've read this year, I should add.
1: The book I'd recommend is not a new book, but it's one that I've recently reread, which is by uh, Martin Rees, and it's called Our Final Century. And it's a very, very interesting examination of everything we've been talking about, all the threats that humanity face. But it was written actually quite a long time ago now. It It was written, I think, 15, 17 years ago, so it sort of predates Mobile. And it's interesting to see how some of the things he's identified... Are actually slightly less, to my mind, less frightening now than they were then. So I am actually optimistic about, for example, energy and climate change and the the rapid growth of renewable power worldwide. I am actually optimistic about that.
0: Well, that that's. A, I'm going to add that to my list. And, yeah. that, and that is a brilliant, a brilliant optimistic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> note on 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 which to end. Um, Matt, many thanks for your time. I enjoyed that immensely. To everyone listening, if you enjoy our podcast, please do hit subscribe and share and leave us a a rating or a review. It's really appreciated. Um, I've been Stuart and this has been Do Not Adjust Your Focus.